You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Our core value this month is evangelism is our focus in every possible way. And the sermon series is on letting your light shine. I think my favorite sermon in the sermon series so far, no offense to Pastor Capace's second sermon or Kevin's sermon, was the first one just because of the way that Pastor Capace talked about light and the metaphor of light. It it really is a fascinating metaphor to talk about evangelism. When you think of a light, a light is something we can see in the physical realm, but Jesus is using it as a metaphor to talk about something in the metaphysical realm. Okay? You, as a follower of Jesus, are to be a light in the world. You're a city on a hill. You're a lampstand uh, sitting on a, a desk, shining into the darkness. What a cool metaphor. And so I just love the way that Pastor Capace kind of set up the sermon with that. And then week two talked about getting out into the world. And we're going to talk about that a little more today. And then Pastor Kevin last week talked about fear and I think if we're all honest, no matter if you're an extrovert or if you're an introvert, just like he said, you have fear when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing the gospel. Now, I will admit from the outset of my sermon today, as I have been given the task of talking about sharing your story, I will admit that I'm still learning. Okay? I want to get that out of the way. I don't stand up here as an expert this morning. I'm still learning. I have had many conversations with Pastor Capace over the last few years. And me and and Preacher, we are accountability partners. Um, I can't tell you how many times Pastor Capace has come into my office and said to me, "Let let let me share with you someone that I share the gospel with. Or he's asked me a question. He said, Scott, are you sharing the gospel with people? And just kind of that little iron sharpening iron. But we've gotten into conversations about what that looks like. And if you notice, Pastor Capace, in talking about sharing the gospel, has asked me to talk on the subject, sharing your story. Now that's significant. And as I'll unpack it in the sermon, I want to start off the sermon by saying, you can't share the gospel of Jesus without sharing your story, because if, if it hasn't impacted you, how do you expect it to impact someone else? So there's been a little bit of a paradigm shift in our church, but really in the American church on what it looks like to share the gospel. And I, I, I want to just share a really quick story with you. Because as I was preparing this sermon, a pastor friend of mine reached out to me and he said, Scott, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I told him, and he said, well, Scott, uh, this last week I had a fundamentalist that criticized our church. And I said, well, what did they say? And he said, well, the fundamentalist church is talking about our church, and it's a church that's just across town. And they're saying, oh, well, that church used to go soul winning, but they don't go soul winning anymore. Um, Let me say very clearly I am not preaching this sermon to the fundamentalists. I have no axe to grind with them. I'm not planning on sharing this sermon with people in my past or former people that I knew. This is for us. This is for gospel light. I don't have an axe to grind with fundamentalists. um, But if I can do a little tongue-in-cheek with my family, 
The title of my sermon that's not going to go on the title, but that's the real title, is why I don't go sewing anymore. And as you chuckle with me, I'm being serious, but I want to share from my heart with you this morning how to effectively share the gospel and why that didn't work. And I'm going to give you a story at the end that kind of ties it all together. Um, But I I, I want to make it very clear. And what I want to attempt this morning is to praise the zeal and the courage of the fundamentalists. Seriously. Like, they have unbelievable courage. I want to praise the zeal and the courage of the Jehovah's Witness. They're not preaching the gospel, but man, are they courageous. Would to God that some of us had that courage But in the most humble way that I can this morning, I want to critique all the while understanding that I don't have it all figured out. If as a church family, the teacher can't get up here and humbly try to critique while admitting they don't have it all figured figured out, we're never going to get anywhere. Okay? I don't have it all figured out, but I'm hoping this morning to get us back to the basics And the basics, surprisingly, might not be what we always think they are. I'd like to offer you a better way, and I want to start off with an opening statement. Share your story, but make sure the gospel you've received is the gospel Jesus preached. If the gospel you've received allows you to enter heaven at the end of your life, but not commit your entire soul to Jesus now then that's the gospel you will preach. And it will both mislead others and deepen your faith in that quote-unquote gospel. If we receive the gospel that Jesus preached, our evangelism will look like us inviting others to join us in discipleship. And I'll give you a little sneak peek to the end of the sermon. You cannot separate evangelism and discipleship. You can't do it. And if you have done it, you're not just you're not evangelizing. It's not the gospel. All right, let's jump into it. This morning, I'd like to talk about the most effective way to evangelize. But really, that will be a brief segment at the very end. Before I do, I want us all to take some time and look at the word evangelism and then talk about the message they were to evangelize. This is essential because if we get the message wrong, we'll get the method wrong. Hear me carefully. If you only hear one thing I say in the first 10 minutes of this sermon, this is what I want you to hear. If you get the message wrong, you will get the method wrong. All of the philosophical debates on how to do this stem from the message. And that's what I want to unpack for us this morning. So three things we're going to talk about this morning. Number one, what is evangelism? And you can guess by now, if I ever ask a simple question that we all think we know, we probably don't know it like we think we should. Number two, what were the apostles? By the way, the word apostle was not a religious word. It was a normal word, and it just meant to send something. So like when they would send a barge from Jerusalem to Rome, they would send it on a barge, and they would apostle it. They would send it, and Jesus grabs that term apostle and tags it on to people because he's sending people. Aha, pretty cool, right? What were the sent ones to announce? And number three, how is evangelism most effective? 
What is evangelism? Evangelism is a Christianese word. How many of you know what I mean when I say Christianese? Would you raise your hand? All right, a Christianese word is a word that the general public doesn't use, but when the general public hears it, they know it's referring to Christian vocabulary. And the, the lost world, the non-believing world, they don't know what these words mean, but if I can humbly submit those of us who grew up in church, we don't know what these words mean. So it's a Christianese word. If you replace the ism in evangelism to cullism, as in evangelicalism, now it turns into a political term that the, those on the left side of the political aisle use to talk about anyone who's a Republican and a Christian. Evangelicalism. But actually, this word evangelize and this word evangelicalism comes from a Greek word, and unless we understand the original meaning of the Greek word, we're not even going to know where to start when it comes to how to evangelize because we don't even know what evangelism is. Got it? Good. Now, Webster's Dictionary almost never helps us when we're looking at Christianese words. Those of you that like to study the Bible, let me say that one more time. The Webster's Dictionary is almost never going to help us when coming to defining words in the Bible because that's not what the Webster's Dictionary is trying to do. They're trying to keep up with the times, and they edit their dictionary constantly to keep up with our urban lifestyle. The the Webster's Dictionary says to preach the gospel to. Now, I like that definition, but I want to point out that even that first definition is a Christian thing, right? That's a Christian thing. The second definition is to convert to Christianity. Right there, they've pulled no punches. This is a Christian word. But the original word in the Bible was not a religious word. It was a very, very common word that they used in their culture. Evangelize in the Greek is euangelizo. To announce, to proclaim, or to preach. Now, I'm guessing that almost none of you have heard of the word euangelizo, but I'm guessing that many of you have heard of the noun. This is the verb, and the noun is the Greek word for gospel, euangelion. Euangelion is the good news. And so if someone was going to preach the gospel, they were going to euangelizo the euangelion. Tongue twister. Say it five times real fast. Okay? A herald or message would mount a horse and deliver euangelion across the countryside that something had happened which had changed everything. N.T. Wright says, Christianity is simply good news. It is, it is the news that something has happened as a result of which the world is a different place. So to evangelize the gospel is to euangelizo the euangelion or to proclaim the good news about Jesus. All right, now I want to stop here in the sermon, and if you will permit me, and I know some of you are tired, and I'm tired too, I want to go into geek mode for about a minute and a half. Can you all let me do that? Okay. The best way to study the Bible is to practice biblical theology, and biblical theology looks at the Bible as a story from start to finish. So I'm not going to jump in and study Philippians um, without having read Genesis to Revelation. And as I'm jumping in to study Philippians, 
I'm constantly reading from Genesis to Revelation because I'm understanding it's a story, and I would never pick, it, pick up a seven-book set on Chronicles of Narnia and start with book four. Got it? That's biblical theology. Now, the best way to practice biblical theology is to see the New Testament writers and what they're tracking from the Old Testament. Now, sometimes it's easy because they'll tell you, as the prophet Isaiah said, yada, 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 yada. But actually, a lot of times we don't catch it in our English translations because a lot of times they just use a phrase in the New Testament and they expect their reader to already know that that came from Isaiah chapter 40. But what's the problem? There's two problems. Number one, we don't speak Greek and Hebrew. But number two, Greek and Hebrew. They're going from one language to another, and how do we know that they were thinking about the Old Testament passage when they're speaking in Greek? Well, the answer is actually a lot simpler than we might think. The Bible that Jesus used was Greek. The Old Testament that Jesus used was not Hebrew, it was Greek. The Old Testament that the New Testament writers used was not Hebrew, it was Greek. Extra credit to anybody who knows what the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible is besides our Bible teachers. Anybody? Septuagint. The Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And all we have to do for those of us who are Bible teachers, and this is what we do for a living, is go on Logos software and pull up Mark chapter 1 and click on the word euangelion, and it shows us all the places in the Septuagint, the Old Testament, where that phrase is used. Okay, all done with geek mode, but it's important. It's important because we can see what the New Testament authors were doing. We can see what was going on in their brain as they wrote. All right, let's give you a couple examples this morning. So, first one is from Psalm 96. Remember, this is the Old Testament, and it was written in Hebrew. But by the time John Mark got around to write the book of Mark, he was using Greek, the Greek Old Testament. So this is what Jesus would have read, and he would have read it in Greek. We're reading it in English. Sing a new song to Yahweh. Let the whole earth sing to Yahweh. Sing to Yahweh. Sorry, I forgot to take the the out. Praise his name. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. The Septuagint renders this euangelizo the euangelion. All right, let's give you an example from the New Testament. Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw, by the way, this is in Greek in our New Testaments. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal euangelion to euangelizo, to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. In the Greek, it says, euangelizo, the euangelion. Now, I'm not taking this much time in our sermon to give you two Greek words to impress you. If I'm doing this, it's important, so stay with me. In our English translations, the noun euangelion is translated gospel or good news, while the verb euangelizo is translated to proclaim or to preach. In summary, 
To evangelize is to herald the good news, which leads us to ask the question, what is the good news? Now, if I was teaching this in the classroom over there, I would take an entire lecture and I would talk about the epistemology of the word gospel, but I'm not going to do that right now. But it really, really drives me crazy. Um, the word evangelism and the word evangelical are new, new English words. Sometime in the 1900, people grabbed the Greek word euangelizo and they turned it into evangelize. But in 1611, when the King James Translation Committee translated the New Testament, they translated euangelizo as to preach. So we have two English words, preach and euangelizo, that come from the same Greek word. But when the King James translators translated euangelizo, we already had the word preach, and the word preach meant euangelizo, so they just used a word that we already had that came from an old English word, God spell, which means good news. Here's the point. Here's the point. When Jesus and Mark and Isaiah used these words, they were not a religious word. It just meant to proclaim good news. So, euangelizo, which we say evangelize, is to proclaim euangelion, good news, to proclaim good news. And now we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what's the good news? And that leads us to our second point. What were the sent ones to announce? Now, you might think that the American public all has the same idea of what the gospel is, but I am here to inform you. If I passed out notepads this morning, and I had each one of you give me your definition of the gospel, and I collected all of them from all of us, you would be amazed at the different answers we'd get. And I'll go a step further. If I went into different denominations, and I'll go a step further, if I went into different socioeconomical and different geographical places in America, and I asked them the same question, what's the gospel? We're going to get different answers. How in the world are we supposed to respond to the euangelion if we don't all have the same definition of what the euangelion is? This is my sermon. My sermon is that we've got to ask the question, what was the euangelion that Jesus preached? We have to start there. Frank Viola says the kind of convert produced is based upon the kind of gospel preached. Let's stop for a second and let's all look at the screen and read that quote again. Just read it. It is essential for you and I to realize that the gospel we receive is the gospel we preach. And so if I have received a gospel, it might even be good, it might be true, it might be wonderful, it might be awesome, it might be from the Bible. But if it's not the gospel that Jesus preached, then when I give the gospel, I'm giving someone a gospel that's not the gospel that Jesus preached. In Paul's most scathing letter, the letter to the church in Galatia, One of the most urgent warnings 
is that they were turning from the euangelion that he had euangelizo. They were turning from the gospel that he had proclaimed to them. Let's look at the screen. I am astonished that you are turning away so quickly from the one who called you by grace and going after another euangelion. Not that it is another gospel. It's just that there are some people stirring up trouble for you and wanting to pervert the euangelion of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King. But even if we, the Apostle Paul says, even if I, or if an angel, shout out to the Mormons, if I or an angel from heaven should euangelizo a euangelion other than the one we euangelizo to you, let such a person be accursed. I am convinced that the number one goal of the enemy is to offer us a version of the gospel that entices us to accept the benefits of Jesus' kingdom without having to count the cost of discipleship. To accept a gospel which allows us to keep the gods of our culture and embrace Jesus too. Scott McKnight says the gospel that many accepted, many believed, many preached, and teach, and that you can find on the websites under what we believe on a lot of church websites is deconstructing the church. If we front load the benefits of the gospel without clearly articulating the gospel Paul preached and Jesus preached, and by the way, time out, if we think that Jesus and Paul preached a different gospel, we're not reading Paul well. We're probably picking verses out of his letters to preach a gospel that we want to preach. If we front load the benefits of the gospel without clearly articulating the gospel Paul preached and Jesus preached, we might be distorting the message. Many of you are familiar with the name John Mark Comer. John Mark Comer is a prolific author, and he, he's, a, he's a generational author. He, he gets so much of what I'm talking about, and he has helped me so much. I know from talking to many of you, many of you have read his book, um, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's one of his most famous books. But he preaches an entire sermon series on the gospel. And in the second sermon in that series, he presents, from his observation, four gospels in America that he has observed. Allow me to take just a small segment of the sermon and try to summarize these four Gospels that Mark, John Mark Comer is mentioning. The first Gospel says that we can receive eternal life without any mention of Jesus as the Christ, the Lord, the King, who demands our allegiance. I was talking to Jeff about this before. This gospel highlights Jesus as Savior, and how many of you understand that Jesus is Savior? Amen? This gospel highlights Jesus as Savior, but it underemphasizes his authority as King or Lord. And if you grew up in a church like this, anytime someone starts talking about obedience to Jesus, the words work salvation start getting thrown out there. 
The second gospel says that Jesus did it all, so all I have to do is just rest in him. This gospel emphasizes what Jesus did. And can we all say amen, Jesus did. But it often underemphasizes our participation in Jesus' kingdom. If you've sat under a lot of preaching like this, which I have through podcast, you get to the end of the sermon and you're like so in love with Jesus, and then you're like, now what do I do? The third gospel in our culture says that Jesus broke the curse. How many of you think that Jesus broke the curse? And what this gospel says is that the curse is poverty and sickness. And so if you just have enough faith, you will be healed and you will be wealthy. But if you are not wealthy and if you are sick, then you just don't have enough faith because Jesus already healed you. And they will take verses out of context to preach this gospel, like by his stripes we are healed, which is talking about spiritual realities, not physical realities. This gospel emphasizes the healing power of God. How many of you believe in the healing power of God? Raise your hand. But this gospel underemphasizes the already but not yet. We still live in the age of sin and death. Now hear me carefully. Over 50% of megachurches that are 10,000 people or more preach this gospel. And I want to clearly say to everyone in my church family, I'm not preaching to the megachurch. I'm not criticizing them. I'm talking to you, my family. I want you to hear me loud and clear. Some of you have children with sicknesses and ailments. Some of you have family members. Some of you yourself have chronic ailments. And the thought has gone through your mind, well, maybe I just don't have enough faith. And maybe you don't. But may I remind you that every miracle that Jesus did was a sign of what was to come. And Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Lazarus died again. And God might heal you tomorrow, but you're going to get sick the next day because you live in the age of sin and death. We live in the overlap of two ages. And yes, God's will is for you to be healthy and whole and to live your best life But that doesn't come until Jesus comes back and eradicates sin and death. And I hate to do this when I'm preaching, but can someone say amen? We cannot fall for a gospel of living your best life. Because when we go into the gospels and read Jesus and the disciples, they all died for their faith. The fourth gospel says that Jesus is a political leader. By the way... This is very prevalent on the West Coast. So some of you who are from the West Coast, this is going to resonate with you a lot more than it resonates with me, an Indiana boy who has now lived in Arkansas. This gospel says that Jesus is a political leader and he seeks to stand up against those who abuse power and to liberate those on the margins. The church's role is simply as an activist to move America towards a progressive socialist political model. The gospel emphasizes the beatitudes and caring for the poor, but it underemphasizes the role of the church in society. 
And surprise, surprise, in the West Coast where this gospel is prevalent, it is by far the most unchurched people groups. You have like entire counties where 98% of the population doesn't go to church, but they're all Jesus freaks of the 70s who are going out there with political activism. Now, depending on your geographical location or the church denomination that you grew up in, you were likely to experience some or all of these Gospels. And here's the point that John Mark Comer wants to make. Much of what American Christians call the Gospel is not necessarily heretical or even wrong. He's being very nice in that statement. But it's not the Gospel of Jesus. We need to measure our preaching of the gospel against Jesus' preaching of the gospel. Look at what N.T. Wright says. I am perfectly comfortable with what people normally mean when they say the gospel. I just don't think it is what Paul means. In other words, I am not denying that the usual meanings are things that people ought to say, to preach about, to believe, I simply wouldn't use the word gospel to denote these things. I remember as a college student, when I first started seminary, I came across this debate. God is my witness. I thought to myself, who cares? And every day of my life since then, I have realized why this matters so much. Because the gospel that we receive is the gospel that we will preach. Furthermore, from my observation, and I'm speaking from my observation, these Gospels are very me-centered. Go click on K-Love. Go to the Christian genre on your favorite music um, app on your phone and see how many of the songs are about me and how I can receive the benefits from Jesus. Over the course of history, we have made the gospel about me, myself, and I, and how I can live in paradise forever. The medieval Catholic church turned the gospel into life after death, which, which could be obtained through merit or indulgences. The reformers turned the gospel into a legal contract, one in which Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The revivalist period called people to respond immediately to the gospel, and invented the altar calls. Once again, I don't want you, I'm doing a broad brush right now. I, I, don't want you to, I don't want you to think that I'm opposed to some of this. How many times in church at Gospel Light have I called you forward at the end of a sermon? The fundamentalist movement of the 1920s pulled, Christ, pulled Christians out of the world except to go into the world to share eternal life. Do you know for sure if you go to heaven, you'll go to heaven when you die. And then, once you're done sharing those gospel tracts, we go back into our secluded home and to our secluded church. And the only time we go over to our neighbor's house is to invite them to church. And a lot more there I could say, but I don't want to get myself in trouble. Evangelical, when I say I don't want to get myself in trouble, I'm referring to my upbringing, not our church family here. Evangelicals created mass evangelism 
inviting the masses to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, but with no plausible strategy to focus on discipleship. Hands raised, how many of you prayed this prayer? I want to propose that as our world has gone from the Enlightenment to postmodernism, which is a very individualistic society, where we have finally discovered ourselves and realized the foolish idea of God, as our society has gone there, the church's definition of the gospel has gone from the message Jesus preached to preaching strictly the benefits of Jesus' kingdom. Hear what I'm saying. I am suggesting to you that as our society has become more individualistic and consumeristic and capitalistic, so our church's gospel message has become me-centric and about how I can benefit from Jesus' death. And by the way, you can benefit from Jesus' death But the benefits of the gospel are the benefits of the gospel. They're not the gospel. And you have to know what the gospel is so that you can know what the benefits are and so you can count the cost of discipleship. Now, I'm obviously covering a lot of ground, and I'll leave it to our history buffs to fact-check me later. But the purpose of my broad brush is to point out one thing and to ask one question. This is the point. So if you don't like history and you got bored there for a second— Here's the, here's the point. What was the gospel that Jesus preached? What was the gospel that Jesus preached? Well, we can find that in the gospel according to Mark. And depending on what translation you have, you might have the gospel of Mark or you might have the gospel according to Mark. The importance is that the whole book of Mark is the gospel, according to Mark. Let's read verses 1 through 3. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Hold up. Be honest. How many of you have ever heard a gospel presentation that did not include anything in the Old Testament? Would you raise your hand? Okay, now all of your hands should be up. And I won't ask you how many of you have preached that gospel because I'll let the Holy Spirit convict me and you. Just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. And what is he shouting? What is the voice in the wilderness shouting? Prepare the way for Yahweh's coming. Clear the road for him. What was the gospel that Isaiah preached that Mark is quoting from? It wasn't how to go to heaven when you die. And by the way, we all want to go to heaven when we die. But that wasn't what Isaiah preached, and that wasn't what Mark preached. The gospel that Isaiah and Mark preached was... Clear the road because God's coming. Let's read verses 14 and 15. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he euangelizo the euangelion. And what was the euangelion that Jesus euangelizo? The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. 
Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So the gospel that Mark preached was prepare the way for Yahweh is coming. And the gospel that Jesus preached was the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Mark says, just as the prophet Isaiah had written, and Jesus says, the time promised by God has come at last. So what was the gospel that Isaiah preached, and what did God promise? Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that I often ask in church, and I'm going to ask you not to flip your Bibles open. And I think normally it's appropriate to do that, but what I want you to do is to relax your minds and just listen. Isaiah chapter 40. By the way, just remember Isaiah split right down the middle. Isaiah 1 to 39 is pre-exile. Isaiah 40 to 66 was written over 100 years later after the remnant came back and rebuilt the wall and the temple, Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, that was for those, that was for a few of you. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, Yahweh has punished her twice over for all her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for Yahweh. Does that sound familiar? Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all people will see it together. Whenever the way is cleared and whenever Yahweh comes, everybody's going to see it together. Does that sound familiar? If I be lifted up. Yahweh has spoken. A voice said, shout. I asked, what do I shout? Shout that people are like grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of Yahweh. And so it is with people. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, messenger, the Septuagint says, of Evangelion. O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah. What are they going to announce? What are they going to proclaim? What are they going to yell from the mountaintops? Your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Yahweh is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God and how he has chose Israel to be the people who represent him and play host to his presence. He would instruct them on how they could cleanse themselves so that the holy God could dwell in the midst of them. But Israel became so corrupt that God allowed them to be captured by their enemies. But after 70 years in captivity, Yahweh said, that's enough, Timeout's over. But we know the rest of the story. The remnant who returned was just as ungrateful as before. The temple and the wall was rebuilt, but where, the ark, where was the Ark of the Covenant? It was lost forever. And what else was lost was the presence of Yahweh, no Shekinah glory. For over 400 years they waited, 
Would Yahweh really come in power and rule? Listen to me this morning. 40 minutes is a long time for Americans. 40 months is a really long time. 40 years is almost incomprehensible. 400 years is not comprehensible. They waited generation after generation. The temple was rebuilt. The wall was rebuilt. The remnant had returned. Where's Yahweh? Isaiah the prophet said that your God is going to come. He's going to dwell. He's going to return. He's going to rule with a strong arm. Where's the God? Where's the Lord God of Elijah? Where is he? They waited. They waited. There was no prophecy given to the prophets. All of the Maccabean revolt... The king, the, the, the Greek empire, then the Roman empire rising, and there's still no Shekinah glory. But in the most unexpected turn of events, Israel's representative, and yes, humanity's representative, allowed evil to come upon himself. When Jesus came, those who believed he was the Messiah were expecting, what were they expecting? Well, they were expecting for him to rule with a powerful arm. And at first it looked really promising. Everywhere he went, he cleansed people from their impurity. The Shekinah glory now had a body with two legs. And everywhere he went, so Yahweh's presence was. The sick were healed, the lame leaped, the dumb spoke, and the dead lived. But then, this Messiah got up on a cross and allowed the enemy to do its best with him. The enemy thought he had won. But the death of God fully exposed the enemy, allowing all creation to see God and his love. The cross was Jesus' enthronement. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he ascended to the heavenly places where he sits enthroned. So the gospel Isaiah preached was true, but it proved that the kingdom of Jesus is paradoxically upside down from any kingdom influenced by sin and death. The gospel that Isaiah preached was your God is coming in power and he will rule with a powerful arm. Isaiah says just a few chapters later, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring euangelion, who proclaim, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. The the gospel, the euangelion that Isaiah shouted from the mountaintops was your God reigns. Matthew Bates says the gospel is best summarized as Jesus is the Christ or we have a new king. All of the atonement theories are trying to understand why God needed to come or what his death accomplished or how can we benefit from it. But the good news is that God has come in Jesus and that he is now the king of the cosmos. All right, I want to take a second in the sermon and I want to have a little fun. I'm going to give you a quote from an unknown source. Let's read it together. The gospel of Jesus is good news that because of Christ's death, key word because, burial and resurrection, we can be fundamentally changed from the inside out and be brought back into fellowship with our creator. All right, how many of you think this is a really good quote? Would you raise your hand? Please raise your hand. I spent a lot of time on this quote. Um, this, is the, this is the quote in our discipleship curriculum. And if you will allow me to throw myself under the bus this morning, this is not accurate. 
You, you say, Scott, this is beautiful. It's beautiful and it's true, but it's not the gospel. And it doesn't look like the gospel that Jesus and Isaiah preach. This is, key word is because, this is the benefits of the gospel. We must start with Jesus' authority and his invitation, praise God for new air condition, and his invitation for us to come under his rule before we ever start sharing the benefits of the gospel. Otherwise, we will get the cart before the horse. Now, I'm about to share a quote with you, and it's too much for us to unpack in one sermon, but I have to include it and just go back later and read through this because it's so good. Let's look at Dallas Willard. At the root of the many problems that trouble the church visible today, there is one simple source, the message that is preached. There is today no one message that is heard, but three or four prominent ones. It is a scene of confusion, which can elicit no firm and coherent response. Because of that confusion, what is ordinarily heard as the message given does not lead the hearer who tries to respond into a life of discipleship with Jesus. If the gospel invites someone to receive the benefits of Christ's kingdom but does not partake in the suffering of his kingdom, it is not only incomplete, but it is misleading and damaging. In 2010, Iraq was in, uh, America was in Iraq. And how many of you remember the purpose that America was in Iraq fighting? Um, well, it depends on who you ask. But one of the things you will hear is that they wanted to turn Iraq into a democracy. Is there anybody here that would help me and give me a quick laugh? Just a fake one. It doesn't have to be real. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to take an Islamic state and turn it into a democracy. And anytime something like this goes down, greedy people's ears perk up quickly. And by the way, if you participated in this, I'm not saying you're greedy. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus. The currency in Iraq was called dinar. And a lot of people in 2010 thought, well, if the Iraqi government becomes a democracy and takes off and is super successful, the currency is going to be a much, worth much more then than it is now. So you had all of these Americans that were going into banks and taking their American dollar and exchanging it for Iraqi dinar and then putting all of that cash of dinar in their closet and waiting for Iraq to become a democracy. Christy and I were talking about it. <laughs> this is actually her suggestion to use this as, a, as an illustration. Uh, Christy and I were talking about this this week. We had a friend of ours in college that I worked with who took his entire paycheck and converted it to dinar and had it in his dorm room waiting to get rich off of it. All the while, he probably couldn't even pay his, his uh, school bill. I want to point out something psychologically in, about dinar, and I want to translate it to the gospel. Um, I have learned that anytime you have one of these Ponzi schemes or scams, um, when you choose to buy into something, every person that you can get to buy into it, you feel better yourself for having bought in. And here's the scary thing. The scary thing is that if you and I, if we are selling a gospel which leaves people in their sin, 
which allows people to keep their false gods, we could actually be buying in deeper and deeper ourselves every time we share it. The gospel is simple. Jesus is now king because he came to earth, was born of a virgin, displayed God to us in person, sacrificed his life for us, was buried, rose from the dead, ascended to the throne in the heavenly places, has promised to return and fully eradicate evil and consummate his kingdom forever. That's simple. But responding is everything but simple. Next week, Pastor Capace is going to be starting a sermon series on love, and the first sermon is loving like Jesus loved And let me tell you what's hard. If you want to sign up for something that's hard, sign up for love. This is not a gospel of works. We have people like Martin Luther to thank for his emphasis on grace. But may I remind all of us of one more quote from Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Real love, agape love, is the hardest thing we could ever sign up for. Love costs you everything. To love God and your neighbor is nothing less than self-sacrifice. Go read 1 Corinthians 13. And Jesus himself said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And here's the catch. Here's the catch to unlock the whole truth. The entire gospel, the entire kingdom is counterintuitive. It's upside down. When you deny yourself, you find Jesus. When you shut out the world, you find the Holy Spirit. When you give up what you want, you find what is most valuable. When you stop worrying, you can finally enjoy your family. When you are generous, you find it's more blessed to give than receive. When you stop coveting, you appreciate what you have. When you stop lusting after your neighbor's wife, you cherish the wife God gave you. When you stop idolizing marriage, you can appreciate the single life. But none of this can happen, none of it, without receiving this agape love from God. We must bathe ourselves. We must submerge ourselves in the good news of Jesus every day. The king became a slave. He denied himself and he died for others. That is the only way that you and I will ever get the strength to love our enemies. It's the only way that we could ever serve our enemies to give our lives for the kingdom. It takes a daily renewing of the mind to saturate ourselves in the good news that Jesus preached that he is king and he's calling us under his rule. Every generation is responsible. Every generation is responsible to saturate themselves in the gospel that Jesus preached, so much so that when false gospels or impartial gospels or as truth labeled as gospel pops up, it can be faithfully exposed. The gospel is that Jesus is king, so love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor. All right, church, I'm done. I want, I want to close with this last point. In the early church, how was announcing the good news to be effective? If we simply look at the sent ones, we will see that their method of evangelism was nothing short of their witness, but it was the testimony of what Jesus had done, not just for them, but in them. The nature of evangelism was for the disciple to share the faithful testimony. And remember, They weren't selling eternal life. That was part of the package. They were selling Jesus and allegiance to him. 
the paradigm of viewing evangelism also needs to be shaped by the holistic, by the holisticness of salvation. It's not just me and my eternal soul, but a restoration of the entire cosmos. Jesus himself said, behold, I am making all things new. Telling doesn't work without showing. Let me say it again. Telling doesn't work without showing. And we are not just sharing recipes of the benefits. We share the teaching of Jesus and call others into obedience. It is by modeling the good news as we tell it that we can convince others that the news really is true, that it really does work. We are called to proclaim the good news and disciple, which is to become an apprentice under Jesus. Jesus himself said to his disciples, go and make disciples. Notice how Jesus' message was to a group, sometimes two or three, sometimes 12, sometimes a whole crowd. But the point here is not mass evangelism the way that we have sometimes seen it done, but creating community. Evangelism and discipleship can only happen effectively together. Evangelism and discipleship can only happen effectively together. I'm going to share a story with you, and we'll be done. I grew up in a church. No one from that church is going to hear this sermon. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm sharing my heart with my family. I grew up in a church that was a mega church, and you played no part in society around you other than to go and share with them how they could go to heaven. We had entertainment in our church. We had church baseball leagues where I grew up every summer playing baseball, and every team that I played was friends of mine that went to the same church as me. But every Saturday, me and my friends would get on a bus and go into the ghettos of Chicago and pass out eternal life to people that I never knew and never saw again. There was no baptism. There was no discipleship. I never saw the people again. I was sitting in my office on Tuesday, and I was trying to think through how I could close this service. And I don't want to paint myself as the example here, because I'm not the example. But I think I'm starting to learn how it works. And the Holy Spirit said to me, Scott, the baseball party last night. On Monday of this week, we had a party for all of my son's t-ball team, and it's a city league. And we had all of them come over to our house, and we cooked burgers and hot dogs. And I, I sat on the back porch of my home with food that we had prepared for my guests. And I met a couple that lives in the village who's unchurched, who's had a tough life, who's gone through many marriages and has come from Houston to live here to get away from the violence. And I sat there for two and a half hours on my back porch and I asked them to tell me their story. And then they asked me <laughs> to share my story. And my story is so full of baggage. 
but it's so full of Jesus. I can't share my story without sharing Jesus. We got all done with the party, and I didn't invite them to say a prayer. And I'm not saying anything against prayers. I use them. I've used them with my children. But I invited them to go on a hike with my family. Because the goal is discipleship. That's the goal. And you can't evangelize without an invitation for discipleship. And discipleship can only happen in a community. You might get someone to pray a prayer if you walk up to them as a stranger and invite them to accept Jesus as their Savior. But if you want to invite someone into a life of discipleship, it's going to take a lot more than that. Four houses down from our house, we have a couple that we met this year. And they've been coming to our house every Wednesday for our small group. Along with a couple that we met at CrossFit. Along with a couple who grew up at First Baptist who has been saved for years and years and years. And they come every week and I preach the gospel to them and they preach the gospel to me. And we keep preaching the gospel to each other because each and every one of us are so prone to run back to our other gods. Sharing the gospel isn't something you do one time. It's something you do all the time. Every time, every time you get with someone is you preach the gospel to each other. And the gospel that Jesus preached is that the kingdom of God is here. And we have a new king. And he's calling us to repentance and faith and discipleship and obedience. It's not a works gospel. He gives us the spirit that comes within us and that helps us along the way. It's probably the longest sermon I've preached here, and I'm sorry. Last, uh, the first service, I was 13 minutes shorter than I am right now. So maybe you all made me feel more comfortable and I went long. But I want to call our church to, as a community together, to discipleship and to inviting other people to come along with us. And I guarantee you when we do that, and when we share our story in the full spectrum of our story with the bad parts too, they're going to look at us and say, oh, me too. You're not a religious person. You're just normal. Uh, maybe, maybe, I didn't get, maybe I didn't get Jesus right. Maybe that Jesus I heard about at VBS wasn't right. Let me, let me give this Jesus a second chance. I'm going to ask us all to stand here in a second. What I'd like us to do for just a few, a minute, just a minute, is to let Jordan and our team here sing over you. Jordan will prompt you to, to join the singing and to sing with him. But at the start, I just want you to stand. I just want you to stay where you're at. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to listen to Jordan, but more importantly, to listen to the Holy Spirit as he sings to you. Would you stand, Gospel Light?